0: In 2004, um, I was taking a flight from Washington, D.C. to Los Angeles. And on this flight, I found myself sitting next to this kind of thin guy with really great hair. Uh, For uh, most of the flight, I sat there quietly listening to music. Uh, But as we got closer to L.A., and the plane began its descent, and the flight attendants started to come around collecting trash, and you sort of take your Empty bag of pretzels and you kind of crumple it up with the napkins and you kind of stuff it inside that plastic cup Well as we were doing that and sort of giving it to the flight attendant I took my headphones out and I struck up conversation with this guy next to me I asked, I, like, I said hey, and he said hey back I said, you know, where, where are you going to? Well, LA, don't, no duh um, Are you here for, for, you know, are you here going home? Are you uh, here for work? And he says, yeah, I'm, I'm going here on business uh, my home is, is in New York City. And I said, "Oh, cool! What are you doing for business?" He says, "Well, I work in television." I was like, "That's cool. Is there are you? Do you work for a show that I might recognize?" He's like, "Maybe." He's like, "Have you ever heard of SNL?" I was like, <laughs> "Yes, I've heard of SNL. Um, it's a great show, you know." I was like, "What do you do?" He's like, "I mostly am a writer." I was like, kind of looking at him. He's like, "Yeah, I don't recognize his face." Eh. And in that moment, it was like, I don't know really what to ask him. So I found myself, I was like, do you know Will Ferrell? He's like, yes, I know Will Ferrell. I was like, oh my gosh, that's so awesome. What's Will Ferrell like? And he's like, he's hilarious. And that was pretty much the course of our conversation. The plane touches down. uh, And as people are standing up and starting to collect their bags, I finally introduced myself to him. I'm like, hey, it was nice chatting with you. My name's John. He's like, hey, John, it was really great to meet you. My name's Seth. Um, And we kind of said, well... You know, have a nice time in L.A. You all are kind of shaking your heads. Because, yes, I sat next to Seth Meyers on an airplane for five hours. I only talked to him for 30 minutes. And of those 30 minutes, I mostly talked about Will Ferrell. I had no idea who I was sitting next to. In 2004, Seth Meyers was not the star he is today but had I known who I was sitting next to, had I known who Seth Myers really was, I guarantee you I would have asked different questions. <laughs> I would not have spent so much, talking, so much time talking about Will Ferrell. Like, I would have related to him differently. Today we're looking at a question um, that God asks. Who do you say that I am? It's kind of like Jesus saying to us, do you know who you're sitting next to? You know? And there's three common answers uh, to this question Jesus is a good moral teacher, Jesus is a prophet, and Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ. Christ is just the Greek word for Messiah. First, Jesus is a good moral teacher. This is what a lot of people think about him. A lot of people, it's rare to find somebody who doesn't like Jesus. But most people say, yeah, I like Jesus. He's a good guy. He's a good moral teacher. Or he's a teacher of good morals. Those who say this, I like Jesus. He was a good moral teacher, like to emphasize Jesus' instructions to love your enemies, to turn the other cheek, and to do unto others as you would have them uh, do unto you. Now That's true. All right? Jesus taught these things. You read the Gospels, you'll see it. You might even see it in red. In the New Testament, a lot of the words of Jesus are highlighted in red. And you'll see that, right? He said these things. But this is not all that Jesus taught. Jesus also taught that he was the co-creator of the universe. That he is himself God in the flesh. Jesus taught that the entire Bible and all of human history points to him. That he truly is at the center of it all. And Jesus taught that there is a heaven and there is a hell and that the only way to enter heaven and escape hell is by putting your faith and trust in him. Jesus taught that we should give others because he has come from heaven to forgive us and we should do unto others as he's done unto us. Jesus taught that we shouldn't judge others because that's his job. When we die, his is the face that we're going to see and he's the one who's ultimately the judge of our lives. Right. Jesus taught all of these things. And in fact, these teachings lie at the very heart or the center of his curriculum. And this is why C.S. Lewis writes in his great book, Mere Christianity, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. And you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher because he has not left that open to us and he did not intend to. You hear what he's saying? He's saying that Jesus is just a man and said and taught all of the things that he said and taught. He is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he is the Lord God Himself, and you've got to make your choice. But He's not just a great teacher. He can't be. He didn't intend for you to relate to Him that way. And yet some people do. Others, however, say okay, I grant that He's not just a great moral teacher, I I think He's a prophet. Right, Jesus is a prophet, somebody who was specially appointed uh, and anointed by God to point people to God. In tonight's story, uh, some people bring a blind man to Jesus. And Jesus uh, takes him out of the village by the hand. And he uh, spits on the blind man's eyes. And then he lays his hands on him twice to heal him. And he gives this man back his sight. Well, after this miracle, Jesus is leaving town. He's going on, he's now moving on to Caesarea Philippi with his disciples. And he he asks his disciples, like, hey, who do people say that I am? And they say to Jesus, they think you're a prophet, like John the Baptist or like Elijah. Now, Elijah, uh, if you recall from a few weeks back, was that great Old Testament prophet who had that showdown at Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. Right? He prays down fire from heaven, showing to everybody that Yahweh alone is God. But when things don't go exactly according to plan, and when Jezebel, that evil queen, right, threatens to kill Elijah, he, he despairs and he runs for his life. And we dealt with this question, Hey, Elijah, what are you doing here? Right? God asks him as he comforts him and counsels him, and ultimately re-enlists him uh, in his fight against Ahaz uh, and Jezebel. Okay, that's who Elijah is. And some are equating Jesus with a prophet uh, like him. Okay? They're saying you're like Elijah. Others are saying he's like John. Right? John the Baptist. Okay, John the Baptist is not an Old Testament prophet, but a prophet in the New. He is a very big deal. John the Baptist is, even though he says, like, look, I must become less, and he, Jesus must become great, he is still a very big deal. But in order to understand just the, what a big deal he, uh, that he is, you actually need to read the very last book in the Old Testament, a book called Malachi. It's short. It's three, no, it's four chapters long. It won't take you long to read it at all. But in that book of Malachi, which is the very last words in the Old Testament, you have two incredible promises from God. And here, I'll read them to you. Malachi 3.1 and then Malachi 4, 5, and 6, which are the very last two verses in the Old Testament. Okay, Sort of like how the OT ends. Malachi 3.1. God says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you will seek, or the Lord whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord. That's Malachi 3.1. Malachi 4, 5, and 6, the last two verses in the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Okay, this is how the Old Testament ends. Okay, the Old Testament ends with God promising to come to earth Himself. But before he does, he's going to send a prophet like Elijah before him to prepare his way. That's how the Old Testament ends. And now I want you to hear how the New Testament begins. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah and Malachi the prophets Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him and the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John, like Elijah, was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Every single one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, equate John the Baptist with this prophet promised in Malachi. The very last book of the Old Testament. The one who is going to come before God and point people to him. Every single one of them say John the Baptist is the prophet preparing the way of the Lord. And if John is the, the prophet preparing the way of the Lord, do you know what that makes Jesus? Jesus. It makes Jesus the Lord. And John the Baptist is very unequivocal about this. He's very explicit. When he sees Jesus, you know what he says? He says, behold, look, there he is, the one who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Look, there he is, the one who ranks before me because he was before me. Behold, look, there he is, the Son of God and the Lamb of God, who's going to take away the sins of the world. John the Baptist could not say it any plainer. Jesus and I are not on the same plane. Jesus and I are not on the same level. I'm a prophet. He is not. I'm a man. He is God. Consider me a sign. That's the destination. This is his ministry. Look, signs are helpful in getting you to where you need to go. And when you're on I-89 and you're driving to Burlington heading north, it's nice to have signs steering you towards uh, Burlington and letting you know that you're getting close. But once you reach Burlington, you don't need those signs on I-89 anymore. You're there. You've arrived. And all that is to say is that Jesus is not another prophet or sign pointing the way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life that all of the prophets are pointing to. And the disciples get this. When Jesus asks, Who do the people say that I am? they reply, They think you're a prophet. But when Jesus asks, But who do you say that I am? they answer rightly, You're the Christ, you're the Messiah. You're the one that everybody's been pointing to. You see, Jesus is not just a good moral teacher, and he's not a prophet like John or Elijah, but Jesus is the Christ to whom John and Elijah and all the other prophets point. But this brings us to our third and final point of this sermon. If Jesus is the Christ, and he is, he's not the kind of Christ that these disciples were expecting. He is a Savior who came to die for sinners. That's who He is. That's what He came to do. You know, a suffering servant who dies for the forgiveness of sins is not the kind of Savior or the kind of salvation that Peter and the disciples were looking for or thought that they needed. Peter and the disciples confessed Jesus to be the Christ, to be the Messiah. But in this stage and their, their spiritual journey, in this stage and uh, their walk with Jesus, here's the kind of Christ or Messiah that they have in mind. Jesus, they thought, was ultimately a political hero they had long been waiting for. Jesus, they thought, was going to gain political momentum and even uh, military might. Jesus, they thought, was going to take the capital city by storm, kick the Romans out, and reestablish the kingdom of David. Essentially, their own first century version of draining the swamp and making Israel great again. That's what they're thinking. That's what they have in mind. Jesus is their outsider, right? That's who they think he is, and that's how they see this story playing out. Which is why when, G- when Peter says, you are the Christ, he kind of says it with a twinkle in his eye. Because he thinks, if Jesus comes to power, we all come to power too. We get to ride on his coattails into the city of Jerusalem. Right? There's, 12 tribes of, uh, there's 12 tribes of Israel, and what did you know? There's 12 of us. How convenient. They're thinking governorship, governor's mansion, power, prestige, fame, fortune. And so they're excited to get their guy in the White House. Because if they do, he can deliver the goods. And they're going to reap the reward. Well, Jesus says, hold your horses. I am the Christ, but I'm not the Christ you have in mind. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Okay, this is the great record scratch, right? Where they're like, come again? What was that? They're kind of nervously laughing. Like, is he joking? Peter pulls Jesus aside. And he rebukes Jesus. Peter has the gall, right? To pull Jesus aside and be like, uh, hello. That's not who you are. And that's not what you've come to do. That is not the plan." Right? You're making a fool of yourself and you're embarrassing us. Right, You're wrong, Jesus. No, Jesus says you're wrong. Actually, he says it's stronger than that, doesn't he? He says, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I did not come from heaven To put you in power and put a Porsche in your driveway. I did not come down from heaven to give you a white picket fence and a manicured lawn. I did not come here to make your life cool or comfortable. I came here to save your life. And not just your life, Peter, I came to save the world. You see, Peter and the disciples still don't get it. Not yet. Right? Not at this stage uh, in their journey. And this is why Jesus sort of calls the time out. And he tells the team to huddle up. Because this is a teachable moment. And Jesus, being a good teacher, he's right, not just a good teacher, but he is a good teacher. He seizes the moment. Right? He capitalizes on it. And he tells his disciples, hey, lean in and listen up. Greatness is not what you think it is. And your problems are greater than you think they are. Okay, Greatness is not what you think it is. And your problems are greater than you think they are. You see, we all have this mental picture of what greatness is. When I say greatness to you, some image, right, comes to mind. For some of you, maybe it's like your face on the cover of Time magazine, People of the Year, or Person of the Year. Maybe that's what you think of. For others of you, it's the Olympiad, standing on top of the podium, gold medal draped around his neck, national anthem blaring behind you. In college football... The image of greatness is the Heisman Trophy. And it's an interesting image. It's a man, in, uh, a man who has a football in his possession. He's holding onto it tight, right, close to his heart. And he's sticking out his other arm like this, sort of like this, <laughs> right? Stiff arming those around him. And in our popular imagination, this is what greatness looked like. You're at the top of your game. You've got what you want, and you're holding it tight close to your heart, and you're running with it, and nobody can touch you. Not even God. That's the image. And Jesus wants to challenge you and anyone else who might envision greatness in this way. Right. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What good is it to get all of the riches, all of the accolades, and all of the trophies if you've got to run over people and stiff-arm those around you, God included, to get greatness? What profit is that to you? What good is it to reach the top if you're standing there all alone? That's not great. That's short-sighted. For what can a man give in return for his soul? Jesus says, you want a better and more honest picture of what greatness really is and is really like? Don't look at the, the cover of Time magazine. Don't look at the Heisman Trophy. Look over here. Look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at the Son of God, who had everything. He had power, prestige, fame, fortune, the works. He had everything. And he laid it all aside so he could save his friends. He became poor so that we could become rich. He became an outsider so we outsiders could become insiders. He denied himself. He took up his cross and he gave up his life so that we could live with him and live forever. This is true greatness. It's Jesus on a cross. It's laying down your life for your friends. For whoever would, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. Y'all, the way up is down. Peter and his fellow disciples have mixed up ideas of what greatness really is. And because they have mixed up ideas of what it means to be great, they have mixed up ideas of who Jesus is and what he has really come to do. They also have confused ideas about what their problem, what their problem really is. Because they, they chiefly think that their main problem is out there and their main problem is Rome. It's Roman occupation of their land. And what we really need to do is to get them out so we can get back in. So we can take power. That's, we've got a Roman problem. And Jesus is here to fix that. So they think. And Jesus says, uh-uh. Look, I am the Christ, but not the Christ you think. I've come to save you and to deal with your problems, but your problems are way bigger and way deeper than you think they are. Look, what is your problem? I'm not saying that in some jerky way, like, what's your problem, man? I mean, what do you think is really standing in front of you or getting in your way? What's the biggest problem that you face today? Here's how I think many of you might answer this question. I'd actually like to hear how you answer this question, maybe over coffee or lunch. We don't really have time for that in this setting. But here's some question, or here's some answers I imagine I might hear. The, my biggest problem is that I'm not strong enough. I'm not thin enough. I'm not rich enough or successful enough or popular enough or powerful enough. And if not having these things is your main problem, the solution is simply getting what you want but don't have. Better grades, a better body, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a better boyfriend, a better girlfriend, more money, more vacation days, more likes on Facebook, my guy or girl in the White House. Right? that's what you see as the solution to your problem. And you imagine Jesus is there to help you get that thing that you want to fix yourself. Simply put, you think your problem is out there. There's something out there that you don't have, and if only you could get it, then your problems would disappear. But that is not how God sees it. The way God sees it, the problem isn't out there so much as it is in here. Your problem is here in your heart. Because according to Jesus, the thing that you really need to be saved from, and the thing that the people around you really need to be saved from, is self-centeredness and the sins that flow out of your self-centeredness. Right? You need to be saved ultimately from your ego. You need to be rescued from your innate impulse to live at the center of the universe. You know what happens when you put something small where something big belongs? something that doesn't have a whole lot of gravity where something with a lot of gravity should be, things spiral out of control and collapse, disintegrate. If you took our planet and you put it where the sun is and you put the sun where we are, you know what would happen to our solar system? It would spiral out of control and planets would crash into each other because we are putting our puny little planet where the sun, which is much greater, belongs. It has disastrous consequences. It would have disastrous consequences. And that is what has happened and is happening in your life right now. God belongs at the center of your life, but you have put yourself in the center and you have pushed aside everything and everyone else, God included, to the side. And it's not just you who is doing this. Everybody around you is doing this too. And so it's no wonder that as you look around you, you're like, holy smokes, Things are falling apart and crashing into each other. It's a mess. In the end, yes, it is, right? And this is why. Look, our self-centered nature and the actions that flow out of it is what the Bible calls sin. Sin is destructive. It destroys people and it destroys relationships and it destroys the world. And somebody's got to pay. Somebody's got to pay the damages. If you crash my car, if you get in my car and you crash it, either you've got to pay to fix it or I've got to pay to fix it. But somebody's got to pay to fix it. Well, we have essentially gotten into God's car and we've pushed him out of the driver's seat and we have smashed his car. And now somebody's got to pay. And either that's going to be us or it's going to be him. And Jesus says, I will pay for it. I will pay the damages. We broke it, but he says, I'll buy it. And that's awesome. You know, what kindness and what grace and what a relief. We need him to do this for us. If Jesus doesn't pay the penalty for your sins, you're paying for it. And that's a problem for you. Way bigger than making the grade or getting the job promotion or getting the summer internship or your guy or girl in political office. It's way bigger than that. All that is to say is this is the kind of savior that you need. You need a Christ who has come to seek and save the lost. You need a Savior who is willing to die for your sins so that you can be forgiven. That is your problem, and that is what he has come to do. But that's not all. You need a Savior who also displaces you. That is to say, who pushes you out of the center where you are doing so much damage and moves you to the side. It's destructive when we put our little earth at the center of the solar system. And in the same way, it's destructive when we put ourselves where only the Son of God should be. It is destructive and it's painful in the same way that a dislocated shoulder, right, is painful. A shoulder that is out of place, right? We need to be put back into place. Not at the center, but the side, And that is why when we love God and our neighbors, and it is why when we deny ourselves, we take up our cross and we follow him, we don't just lose our life, we gain it. We experience life the way it was meant to be lived. If Jesus is just a teacher, you're just going to look to him for advice. If Jesus is just a prophet, you're going to be looking for somebody else. But if Jesus is the Christ, you'll look to him for salvation. And that is what you need. You don't need good advice. You need good news. You don't need a referral. You need a rescuer. He might not be the rescuer, rescuer you expected, but he is the rescuer that you need. He is a savior for self-centered sinners like you and me. You all remember that flight I had with Seth Myers. I do too. (laughs) Remember me saying, if I knew who he really was, I would relate to him differently? Well, the same is true here. If you really know who Jesus is, you're going to relate to him differently. You're going to relate to him the way that you ought to. So I want you to hear him ask you again tonight. Who do you say that I am? Not who do your parents say that I am? Not who do your grandparents say that I am? Not who do your friends say that I am? Not even who does your campus minister say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Let's pray.